Hi, my name's Claire Grenier. I'm a member of the Métis Nation of Ontario, and welcome to Indigenous, a new podcast on CKUT about truth, research, and reconciliation. Brought to you in collaboration from the Student Society of McGill University and me, the current Indigenous equity researcher. For my inaugural episode, I chose to speak with Chadwick Cowie, a course lecturer at McGill University and a PhD candidate at the University of Alberta. Recorded virtually in Tiutaka on the unceded lands of the Ginnigahaga Nation, Chad and I talk about his research, what reconciliation means, how it relates to sovereignty and nation-to-nation relationships, and finally, the joy and importance of being Indigenous in the classroom and what discussions that can open up and what the future holds for different types of Indigenous scholarship. I hope you enjoy our conversation just as much as I did. Thank you for listening. Um, um, so for those listening, I introduced myself in Anishinaabemowin, um, or also in English known as Ojibwe. Um, I am an instructor here at McGill University. I have taught for the last five years the Political Science 372 class, uh, also known as Indigenous Peoples of the Canadian State, in the Political Science Department here at McGill. Uh, I am a PhD candidate at the University of Alberta in Political Science, where my focus is whether or not Indigenous people participating in the federal electoral process can bring change, with a focus on 2015. I'm also specifically Michisagi Anishinaabeg, which is one of the nations that are underneath the Anishinaabeg, um, or in English, the Mississauga Nation. This is where the city of Mississauga gets its name from. Our traditional territory is what we would call, um, is this territory shared with much of Southern Ontario. Um, so, Bamadashka Deyang is our name for my community, which is also known by, by Canadian legal standards, by Indian Max standards, as Hiawatha First Nation, or Hiawatha um, uh, also known as an Indian Reserve, according to Indian Act. Um, I am joining you, obviously, here from Ganyaga Territory. I'm joining you from Mohawk Territory. I'm in the Montreal region. Uh, and I am Caribou Clan. Before uh, the summer, I had understood I was Wolf Clan. But um, with, with doing research, it's, it's, it's been realized that the Cowies, from where I'm from, are actually Caribou. And so this has been, a, again, a, a refining and reconciliation within our own selves of, of de- deconstructing that colonization that we fit. What would you say is your definition of truth and reconciliation? Mm-hmm. Because it's, you know, I always think of um, truth and reconciliation as a causal statement as well. Because without truth, you can't have the reconciliation. And exactly. we're still struggling, um, you know, in the country known as Canada to get to and accept that truth. And and what that, that truth means, is, again, it's it's not just simply colonization, it's different experiences depending on the nation. The Dene have a very different experience with colonization mm-hmm. in Canada, Canadian encroachment than my people do. To understand Métis, and to understand what was done to Métis, you have to understand that history that, you know, although there's Manitoba is what recognizes them, there's a whole purpose. Bringing in Manitoba wasn't done to fully recognize them when you look at the literature. It was done to purposely eventually subjugate them and control them. It was to open up the prairies to be able to have further access by those who are those elites in, in, in Ontario who were connected through through um, the English speaking majority there. Um, you literally have examples where they are forced or Métis are forced into hiding their identity, claiming to be Francophone rather than being able to be who they are because because of this. Yeah. Um, 
when we're talking about colonization reconciliation, that truth, it's it's acknowledging that the Inuit were never considered important until it became an important thing to do with sovereignty. They weren't something significant until Canada needed to lay claim in some way and have bodies there to be able to lay claim to the north. So you you have them use as human flag poles. They are you literally used in relation to sovereignty issues. They're they're used to territorial claims, not because they're considered equal. They're getting they're they granted citizenship not because they were wanted to be given citizenship, but because they were needed to be used as as human flag poles, as we've discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, and this being done throughout the fifties, but not actually having the chance to vote until the late seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, and not even being given names, just being given numbers, in usual cases, being given a dog tag. Um, the fact that it was just assumed that we could be freely moved around for the, for, to, to support the national building of Canada or the, the, the nation building policies that Canada eventually implements. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The truth and reconciliation includes understanding, acknowledging that history, acknowledging that present day, how things exist today, that there's more to it than just. Um, socioeconomic mean or socioeconomic issues that there's a historical context that needs to be done. So I'm also coming from a perspective of being from my territory, being from my community. Um, so my perspective does not necessarily reflect every other nation or every other group. And my, my reflection also probably reflects the fact that I am mixed. I come from a family line that has been active in the Canadian military, um, who has been active in the education system. Um, I come from, a mindset of, of where in my family the strong people who are there with the knowledge is the woman in my family so that that's where i'm coming from that perspective so my perspective and what i'm looking at may be very very specific and, and is obviously very much entailed towards me so in no way do i what i'm going to say reflects all indigenous people let alone all this saga people it mm-hmm. reflects what i've grown up with so Truth means understanding that history, acknowledging it, and doing better about it. And not so not only admit, acknowledging it, but actually doing stuff to heal what has been done. Because um, a lot of what has been done is still going on. So again, when we talk, my number is 162-004-6601. That under Indian Act standards means that I am status Indian according to Section 27 of the Indian Act. Um, I'm told what level and how much of a generation I am in regards to being first nation or in canadian legal sense status indian mm-hmm. um so this is still something that's still going on we're still dictated to who is allowed to be one of us and who's not and this wasn't something that was agreed to be given up but this was something unilaterally taken and and imposed um that when we're that this relates to again that long line of colonial history where it's still very much in place it's not just history it's still contemporary canada is still a colonial state it's still um, legitimizes itself by keeping things in place that try to delegitimize or under under rule um, indigenous nations. So having to have that serious conversation about about that history, but also that contemporary existence that's still going on. As I say to my, as I say to the the, the students in my class, I almost said kids. I need to remember not to do that. Um, as I say to the students every year, and I, I believe I said this last year with our classes, that I remind students. I'm a ward of the state. I may be your instructor. I'm teaching you, yes. And technically, although I'm the one who has, I'm supposed to eventually have that doctor in front of my name or that P, the PhD in front of my name. I have an MA in front of my name. I'm qualified to teach this. I'm still a ward of the state, which means I'm still controlled. I'm still governed and uh, dictated to by the Canadian state far more than what the average Canadian is. I can die tomorrow. And, what, and they can decide what to do with my body. They can decide what to do with my property if they want to. Not saying that they will, 
but they can. Mm -hmm. That is a very fact. They have the right to do that because I am a ward of the state. I have a permanent record um, simply because I am status Indian according to Section 27 of the Indian Act. Um, having real conversations about about what that truth is and that Canada has been built upon in many ways a lot of problematic, illegal um lacking and following what they agreed to on behalf of the crown um and in a way to purposely remove us out of the way that that needs to understand to be able to move forward you can't just expect to wipe your hands clean and move forward and that's part of reconciliation as well from the, from a lot of indigenous perspective in order to move forward you have to acknowledge the past yes you can't change the past i get that so we talk in the western sense you know it's you know up and up, up and forward or um um you know, keep keep moving forward. It's, you know, you can't change the past as a type of mentality, but for Indigenous people, it's not about changing, it's about making sure to acknowledge it so it doesn't repeat itself. Mm-hmm. And so reconciliation includes part of that is that if you're going to move down a new path together, you're going to reconcile that history, you're going to reconcile that existence, that relationship, you need to be able to acknowledge it, understand why that happens so that way it doesn't happen anymore and go down a new path that isn't doing the same thing in some way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you see any elements of storytelling or honoring oral traditions or something in uh, the research that you do. So, so with the research that I'm currently doing for my dissertation, not so much because um, when I approached that subject matter, it was looking at it through a very academic lens. However, mm-hmm. as you know, when teaching, I bring in my family and my community history because I, I make it very uh, make it very clear that this is something that needs to be done because it is a part of. Uh, indigenous ways of knowing it's a part of indigenous ways of, of learning is that you situate yourself you mm-hmm. have to you have to explain and ex- acknowledge that you have a way of that you, you're coming from a, pers- a specific point of view in in western academia western ways of thinking the scientific method it's assumed that it's not biased but we need to remember it is very biased it comes from a complete very specific way of looking it comes from a dominant way of looking um the scientific method and this free from bias Western academic uh, perspective has been used to undermine hundreds, thousands, millions of people and different groups of people, um, nationalities and ways of thinking from around the world simply because they weren't the dominant form at the time, or they weren't the ones who had the power at the time. Um, So for me, it's, it's, it's continuing on that fact of situating myself and talking about it, not only putting forth the academic point that has to be through or or the academic literature, but situating myself alongside of it, including that to remind, to remind people that, there is this there is the human side to this that it's not you can't separate it that it's not a hundred years ago that we're not talking about policy we're talking about people when it comes to especially indigenous stuff um when it comes to indigenous understanding that's not just citizenship or it's not just policy it's not just administration that we're talking about we're actually talking about things that affect people and we're talking about people who are still told to this day who's allowed to be one of them and who's not yeah yeah i i'm very interested in uh the nation to nation model and how that might be able to help and or hinder these efforts of truth and reconciliation and even sovereignty. Well, that, that, that's what that means is, is a whole other question because nation to nation, is that nation to band council? Is that nation to band, uh, is it nation to community or is it nation mm-hmm. to actually um, the organizations that are within the Canadian construct um, like the FN, Chiefs of Ontario, or is it actually nation to nation so is it going to like when we do this we need to remember canada to the to the micmac canada to the Maliseet, canada to to the abenaki or on top of that canada to the wabanaki confederacy mm-hmm. canada to the noshone confederacy canada to the Cree, canada to the inuit canada canada to the anishinaabeg and specifically the different nations within it um 
it's, it's going to be key for remembering to do it that way. Because again, that relationship, that history of colonization is different depending on it. what was done to the Cree out in the prairies. It's very different from what, what, what happened to the Cree in the North or what happened to the Haudenosaunee in, in their, their traditional territory, what happened to the, to the, to those that are a member of the Wabanaki Confederacy. It's, it's very different and stark. And, and we need to remember how those approaches are, uh, that, that they're different because the prairies become not only in the East, it is this, you know, uh, this nation-nation relationship, there's allies, there's friendships, it starts off that way, and then slowly turns into where they're in the way of progress. While you get out to the prairies, it is they're, they're simply in the way of progress, they're simply in the way of being able to utilize that land for resources. So um, that nation-nation relationship, yes, I'm curious to see what that means, especially because we need to remember that the 666 band councils, or the, the 660-some bands that exist, are Canada's construct. Canada makes mm-hmm. them that way. Um, some of these communities in the East were already communities before. So my community and five and four of the other Mississauga communities, we had established ourselves in the 1820s and 1830s as villages under a permanent settlement. We weren't even as reserves. We didn't become reserves until they unilaterally made us reserves in 1876. That's that's we weren't we weren't that before that. Um, so how that nation nation goes about. And especially what is being done internally to get to that nation-to-nation relationship is very different. What is going on? So I know in, in regards to the Mississauga communities, there is a lot more over the last 10, 15 years, a lot more communication between those those six communities coming back together as a nation rather than simply separate communities. So it's, 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 it's interesting watching that as those conversations happen and then having those relationships or having those discussions with other nations. So this November, there was a meeting between the Mississauga communities and the Huron it was the first time that the two nations met as nation and nation since 1813. Wow. It was a, it was a very historic meeting because we hadn't met as nation and nation mm-hmm. since the war of 1812. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, I think it's very interesting because a lot of this idea of nation to nation relationship, not just between indigenous and first nations and Métis nation and, um, and Inuit, uh, it's also between themselves as well. It's like one first nation to another first nation. Like that's a nation to nation relationship too that, um, you know, can be highlighted and used, but it's still building that is requiring a lot of, you know, finding again, the respect between those nations and the trust between those nations in order to build upon that in a way where there can be um, constructive talks that contribute to you know an indigenous resurgence or just uh more visibility of indigeneity and different ways of being politics well and and what indigeneity means because it has different Mm -hmm. definitions right um and the way i look at the the broad definition of indigeneity is like the key thing for me is that it's within our own nation to decide who is a part of us and who's not that's Mm -hmm. the key thing that goes alongside of it um but also, yes, there, there, those internal discussions, whether it's between bands or not who are of the same nation, there are some bands that were originally one group, um, but they separated based on religious lines or, or they separated based on a disagreement. Um, and there's, there's healing that needs to be done through that. Um, but but that is, that's the question going on, because it's not only reconciliation that has to be done in the Canadian context, but it's also there's also truth and reconciliation that has to occur within our own, within our own nation. Um, for First Nations people, for all three um citizenship has been used as a way to curtail and get rid of um a separate identity or to get rid of any claims of legitimacy by their own nations or or, or their own their own um 
their own citizenship codes. Um, and again, so what I said in regards to Inuit, what we see happen with Manitoba and the Manitoba Act in regards to Métis and then the Northwest Resistance, um, for First Nations people, it was that granting of that citizenship uh, or, or that utilization of citizenship and enfranchisement was to purposely take away their rights and to, their claims to being from the nation that they are from. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a very critical and very negative look at what citizenship means in the Canadian sense, because by becoming part of the Canadian citizenship, uh, by becoming a Canadian citizen, you are therefore a citizen of that country. That gives that legitimacy. So we talked about popular sovereignty. It's the sovereignty is given and granted by the people who, who take part in it. So our, by, by taking part in Canada, are you legitimizing the state that has been working towards delegitimizing and deconstructing your own nations? Um, however, by 1960, for First Nations people, they were granted citizenship without having to lose their identities. So there could be an argument that that, in a sense, recognizes dual citizenship, uh, a citizenship between our own nations and um, a citizenship to the Canadian state. And in doing so, there's the ability to participate in both without feeling like it's, delegit- it's, feel like it's delegitimizing um your own your own nation because we're dealing with a we're dealing with a settler state that has been existent since 1867 and has worked really hard to look like it's a legitimate one and to training and educating its citizens to assume that it is that way that it is what is the be all it is legitimate state um how do you fix that well john burroughs talks about different ways to fix that and how you can influence it from inside and that influence is just as important as doing work from outside of it and pushing against it mm-hmm. um the more you change the inside and the more you, you restructure it or the more you, you influence who's actually within it, the more chances of being able to see that change come. And so, so utilizing citizenship, utilizing the ability to vote or to get involved within the, the Canadian state can, in a sense, help with re-legitimizing and re-recognizing our own nations um, because you're influencing that structure within it. It's, it's, um, it's something that can be done, especially when it becomes a choice now rather than it, it is a force upon um um, way of, of, of assimilation and, mm-hmm. and uh, taking away from our own um, nation. Chris, we briefly touched on settlers, and I think I'm always interested when we are in spaces like classrooms and people are introducing themselves as settlers. It, to me, naturally goes into um, a discussion of you know a current rallying cry for Indigenous youth of land back. Of you know, I think that's a very it's a very pithy saying, but it's also a very complicated history to it because uh, there's a long history of paternalism through the state over indigenous people. And I think land back, like you said, with the same thing with settlers, it's not, you know, get off the land. <laughs> it's not everyone leave and go back to wherever your European or otherwise ancestors are. I think it's about not even ownership. It's about stewardship. Um, And it's hard to... It's hard for settler scholarship, I think, to really understand ideas of stewardship because government for so long has been thought of in terms of domination um, and ownership, not of care and progress in those senses. And again, it's it's that it's that Western academia, it's that Western way of thinking. It's it's that education system. That's that's the logic that that's the thought that comes from that side because of how it's looked at. It's that sort of individual property and being all be the key thing. Sovereignty and how it's defined is very 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 focused in regards to a Western construct. Sovereignty for Indigenous people usually means something that we carry ourselves. So just the difference in how that refers exactly with what you were saying there. There there's more to it than this idea of get off, go back. We need to go live in a pre fourteen ninety two context. I will never agree to that. 
I like my, I, I, I cannot, I cannot light a fire. I cannot, <laughs> I, I will, I, I will die very quickly. I acknowledge that. Um, yeah. Even as a kid, it was something that I never really tried to, <laughs> it was not something I wanted to do. Um, I, I accept that. But again, why is this idea that it has to be in a certain way and we have to reflect a certain way in, in history rather than being able to evolve over time like any other group of people have been able to? Yeah, yeah. I, gosh, one of my most vivid memories uh, as a young kid being like 12 that really cemented myself of like, oh, this is an important part of my identity. Um, as I remember going to a harvest dinner for the Niagara region, um, Metis Association, and then that following week in school, we're learning about Louis Riel, and the class is separated into two groups to debate on whether or not Louis Riel should have been hanged, you know, if he was a criminal. And it was, you know, I had to debate on the side that he was, and they wouldn't let me switch, and they didn't understand why I wanted to switch. And it was like, this isn't a debate, I think, so often, even, you know, on my my mother's side, my grandfather still doesn't believe that there's a, a cultural genocide. And it's like, your daughter married an indigenous man, and you still are like telling his children that you don't think this happened. You know, you don't realize, or people with that mindset don't realize that, you know, the someone's existence is not what's up for debate. You know, the fact that indigenous people are still fighting to be taken seriously as people is a big hindrance to any kind of idea of truth and reconciliation at large, any idea of serenity or anything of that sort. And, and on top of that, like you said, you said exactly that. A lot of Canadians reject the fact and a lot of countries, they can't, they can't believe that their country would do that because of what it stands for. Canada is really good at, at espousing what it, what it wants to look like, but it still has to acknowledge the fact that its history shows that it's a different story. When we're doing this, when we're calling the question, when we're talking about genocide, when we're talking about cultural genocide, that strikes at the very core of what it means to be Canadian. It strikes at what that Canadian identity is built to, to, to be made to be look like, right? It's not saying that that doesn't mean that that Canadian identity and that, that idea of what is Canadian can't exist. It just means there's work that has to be done to actually get it to that point. And ignoring what has been done is not what's going to do that. And that, that's a hard thing for people when you question and call into question their own identity. Um, it, it's something that they have to, it, it's a reconciliation of their own that they have to go through to try to understand and that. It's not saying that to be Canadian is bad. It's, it's that, you know, if you want to actually espouse to be what this, this version of Canada is and what this version of a Canadian is, we need to actually do something about the past. We need to acknowledge, we don't have to hide it and we don't have to pretend like it doesn't exist. But again, it, it comes to the fact of what people are told and what people are taught. There's a lot of stuff that we're taught. Um, Canada's history is it was how it's treated people is not talked about as much as as the United States. Canadians have a hard time reconciling with that because it's it's a part that's been hidden and you know Canada's been good. Canada's been very lucky to be able to go. Oh, look down there! Don't look at us. Look down there. They they have issues. Like I, I think after George Floyd was murdered, it was it was. I remember people saying, you know, Canada. Oh, Canada's that 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 apartment above the. Canada's that apartment above the like drug den. And oh, I'm like, yeah. no, no, Canada's the second floor to that house that is owned by that mob. So, so what is unique and powerful about indigenous scholarship, either in your experience or in uh, ways that you're seeing it develop and come about in the last few years? I've just never understood how it could be explained away. I'm I'm from a different section of it. Like um, my MA advisor, Kiara Ladner, and, and the people who mm -hmm. came before me and those who are still obviously in it, but who who had to go through those first groups, who had to 
pretty much put their foot through the door to make space to be able to even get through the door. Um, I can I can't even imagine what they had to go through being told constantly that this wasn't political science or this wasn't something that could be discussed and that, you know, it's not, it's not accurate constantly being told that what they're saying is not actually anything to do with anything academic or um, of importance to any higher learning. Um, that's starting to change. I, I'm, I'm noticing you're starting to see inclusion of it and understanding of how it needs to be included, um, which, which is very important. You're seeing more indigenous scholars come in. I would never have dreamed of a day where you would see indigenous political theorists being able to bring in indigenous political theory into, <laughs> into the mix. We're starting yeah. to see that. McGill has someone who does some of that, who, who, who comes at it, for, comes at, comes um, to political theory with, with, with some of that understanding. It's very interesting um, to see that change. And we're starting to challenge some of those, those, those dominant perspectives, especially in political theory, by, be, by doing that, um, which has been something that I'm excited to see because I always despised... <laughs> political theory uh, <laughs> had an issue with all the old white men um, yeah. especially going like Aristotle John Locke I, I had issues with them mm-hmm. um, and it was just it, there was an understanding of why I should have issues with them and understand I couldn't really explain why I would have full issues with them because I didn't see myself in them but um, time has over time it's changed like in our in 372 we talked about that Aristotle's whole who is to be a slave and who's to be a master mm-hmm. and how that transcends over over time to become who's to be colonized, who is to be the colonizer, who's to be governed and who is to be the governing mm-hmm. governing. Um, you see a fine line go through it, which, which is something that I wish we could have explored when I was an undergrad, I would have done a lot better in political theory if I had been able to see something <laughs> like that and go with it. Um, I probably wouldn't have even been willing to minor or, or to use it as one of my subfields, but um, it was not something that was an option. So I did not really care for it. I went to comparative comparative is one of my areas of focus because you can have that ability, but even that um, is difficult. When I did my, my comprehensive exams for my dissertation for, for my PhD, I failed both of them. Mm. And one of the reasons why I failed my comparative one was because I wanted to talk about sovereignty in the comparative lens. I was told that you can't do that because that's an IR thing. Well, comparative is literally the comparison of all politics in my mind. So I didn't understand that, especially when there is different understandings of sovereignty. I had to rewrite it and talk about how the state is changing and how our view of the state needs to be rediscussed and reevaluated. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Canadian one, I just talked about bringing indigeneity into the field. And there was issues with that because... Um, yeah, someone on my someone who was on my my, my comprehensive exams committee called a conspiracy theory, um, which and this was only in tw- this was only in twenty fifteen. Yeah, so, wow. <laughs> um, but um, I, as someone in my cohort as well, they taught they use the term uh, cultural genocide in their Canadian comp, and this this other person from from the department had had you know said, well, that's still up for debate. No, it's not up for debate. It's quite mm-hmm. factual. Yeah. And the fact that we have to say cultural genocide rather than just simply saying genocide is a sign of things that 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 still needs to um that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. We need to accept the fact that Canada Canada's history is built on genocide. Johnny McDonald created genocide. He literally purposely starved out people and 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 allowed people to die in order to be able to have control based on the fact of who and what their ethnic background was. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just cultural genocide. There was a purpose. We have some, the, the founder of residential schools stating that he knows that over 50% of students who go into residential schools aren't going to survive the diseases, but it's still worth, it's still, it's still not worth um, getting rid of the system when the, 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 the whole point of the system is to get rid of the Indian and the child. Yeah. So that's more than just culture. That's literally talking about someone's identity, someone's ethnic identity, someone's ethnic background as a reason that like they need to get rid of it. Um, so 
it still shows that there's some that there's still some work that needs to be done and being not having to be so careful with plain words but in my long history of being in academia because I've, I've been in school for a long time now um it's definitely different again it when i was doing my master's degree we had uh we had to look at a, a one one piece and everyone in the class except for myself was very offended by being called a settler i didn't see any issue with it Mm-hmm. Uh, I can understand why they 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 had issue with it though because it's it's like me being called an Indian without realizing the full context of what that means. Um, but then the first time teaching three seven two at McGill, the students in the class were more than willing and open to having a conversation. What is settler? And does settler only mean white settler? Mm-hmm. In Canadian context, does it actually include more than white now because of things have changed? Never would have been able to have had a conversation like that from my in my MA coursework yeah. or or before that, that was not, never something that could happen. So there's a lot more understanding and willingness and, and um, moving forward. And part of that is because there is an increase in, in um, indigenous scholars coming into the field. There are certain fields that are a lot more further along with that. Um, political science has a long way to go, mm-hmm. um, but it is a lot better than it was when I was an undergrad. Um, even when I started my master's, there's a reason why I had to go West to go do my graduate work yeah. that I couldn't be, I couldn't stay in the East. Um, and that's, that's changed since I started this. So um, there's definitely some, some positive stuff coming out of it. The fact that you, that universities realize that they need people who are actually indigenous to teach some of this stuff in the field of, of, of political science is very key. It's why I'm, um, it was, it's recommendations that have gone forward and led to positions such as the one that I will be taking up at the university of Toronto in July. Um, so I'm, I'm very thankful for, for the fact that that's moving forward and it's, it's yeah. good. It's good for, for me, but also not only done that, but there's, there's also an understanding needing to make sure there's someone from that territory. You university of Toronto is on my traditional territory. Yeah. I'm able to go home. I'm able to go back to my home territory for the first time since 2001. Wow. Yeah. And like permanently live there again. Cause I, I've been outside of that area. Like I've been down to London, Ontario, which isn't Mississauga territory traditionally. Um, so it, it will be, it will be a return to my home territory permanently being able to reside in the territory that is of my ancestors. Uh, so it, it will be nice. And it, it's, it's allowed to happen that way, or it's, it's able to come about not only because of the work that I've had to do, but that work that has been done by those who came before me, those who've had to actually put their foot through the, through the door to make space. People like Kira Ladner, people like Joyce mm-hmm. Green in, in, um, in political science, having to do that. People like Sharon Zen in, 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 in legal theory back in the 80s and 90s, yeah. um, Ellen Terpel, um, these people who've had to do a lot of this work in order to be able to allow for it to happen or to, to even get it to this point. It's my job. Uh, to help make sure that it continues to be put open instead of just having a footstep door, actually opening the door to make sure that's actually properly accessible for others. Mm-hmm. It's even people, sometimes I find people are so shocked to find that they're in the, a class with an Indigenous person or someone who self-identifies. Yeah. And it's even more, it's, it's even more shocking for them. Um, so I didn't mean to cut you off there, okay. but uh, as someone who looks stereotypically yep. white, <laughs> There's a whole other context because I, I noticed my experience in, in classes when I was a student, when I could blend, was that they would be more, they, they'd feel more free to say things until they found out that I was actually part of the group they were talking about. Then there was a lot more cautiousness and a yeah. lot more shock. Um, I don't know about you, but for me, it's like, you're not native. You can't be native. You're, you, you don't look native. And so my response usually is, what is a native person supposed to look like? Because there is, you know, uh, there are good faith questions. And then I think there are almost tokenization that gets out of hand as well, which I think 
is where it comes from. Like the wow, like you're so brave and, for like speaking up. It's like it's not about being brave. It's like that's not the point. The point is for a lot of indigenous people or people with indigenous heritage, like the opportunity to connect with this community has been unavailable for, you know, 70 to 100 years, like a long time. Like my my family, you know, my my dad didn't know that his dad was indigenous until he was in his 30s because his grandparents left res- their reservations and didn't look back and moved somewhere else and settled down. And I, I think for me, you know, doing projects like this as well, even though I, you know, fully know that I'm very white passing, I like doing these kinds of knowledge sharing to me is a way where it's like, I can be part of a resurgence rather than a disappearance. And being someone who can have this knowledge and share that knowledge and educate other people, or even just have these conversations between two people who are indigenous about scholarship and ways of moving forward in truth reconciliation. I think that's really important and showing the different ways that indigeneity manifests um, through things like the university and even through people who are interested in politics and want to participate. And I, I think what you said there's key. I think that's what a lot of, a lot of perspective from indigenous people who are, who are pushing this to make sure that if, if they have space, it's making sure that that space is utilized properly. If they have exactly. that voice, they're making sure it's not quiet. For me, the way I've, I've looked at it is that as long as things are any, as long as things are a step, two steps, three steps better than it was for me growing up, as long as it's better for my children, my grandchildren, mm-hmm. then it's been something work. I know it's not, it, it's not an overnight thing. It's not going to, you can't snap your fingers and fix the last 150, 200, 300 years. It will take, it takes time and it will take time. Reconciliation. That's a point of reconciliation. You can't just like say, Oh, I'm sorry. And then, act like you don't have to do things and, and do things in good um, um, conduct uh, to, to follow along with that, to be able to actually have it vi- viable and actually be considered. And that, that's been the issue because this is what Canada has traditionally done. But um, as long as moving forward, there's that, there's that adding that voice and making sure that it's not gone away. It's reminding us that we have a duty, not only to that seven generations to come, but we have a duty to our own ancestors who, yeah. who, who were, who were pushing back and made sure that we'd be able to be here today and that relates again to the not 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 the found graves, the confirmed graves. Because we need to remember these are not found; they've always been there, and it's been highlighted by the survivors that they were there. Mm-hmm. So these are these are confirmed. But again, that for those of us, especially who on on the First Nation side, who survived that whole process, I'm here today because my great grandfather did. Mm-hmm. He simply survived, and. I have a duty to those who not only survived, but to those who did not to be able to make sure to keep going so that way they're not forgotten. Métis yeah. people who survived the onslaught from 1870 through to 1885. And then again, what was going on? And I don't say just specifically then, but then following that when you had to hide your identity because it was a lot better to be Francophone in Canada yeah. than it was to be Métis um, or face persecution or face death. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a duty to that as well. There's a duty to that identity and, our, our, our lineage somehow survived yeah. how many did not mm-hmm. and and how many did not have a chance to and it's it's part of our duty it's something that we're taught to remember that we are we have to keep that alive because for the longest time and in some cases it still is trying to be taken away from us mm-hmm. yeah yeah thank you for taking time out of your day to chat with me this was great um no thank you claire for for having me for of course wanting to have me on to talk